Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. Uh, Well, we're so excited to have not only... On remote, we have in the studio here, we have Jeff Guerin from Guerin Hart Yang, a Democratic pollster. He's been around for a long time since I've been in the business. In fact, since when before I. Before Margie's been born. <laughs> I don't know if it's been quite that long because that is kind of a long time now. But in fact, when I very first started my business, you sent me this incredibly nice note. I don't know if you remember, you sent I me did. a very nice email. And I always remember that. So when you, and you said, if you ever want to come over here, just let me know. And that was always like in the back, like when I had like a bad day, I was like, well, I guess I could always go work for Jeff Garrett. Like he, I thought maybe you had long forgotten that note that, you know, no. but that was a good, like, always admired your work. Oh, well, thank you. That's very sweet. You say, and I'm so glad you could come by, you actually come in the studio and Kristen is in Cleveland. So everything is noisy and crazy as I'm sure everybody can imagine. So she sends her regrets. She could not make it at this time, but, um, she's a favorite of mine. Yes, yeah, so everybody's a fan, a, fav- a fan of everybody else's. So we wanted to talk a little bit, one, about what everyone seems to be talking about this week is what's going on in the Republican convention. How does it strike us as Democrats watching it? And also, what does it make us think about um, polling headed into November, testing, what's going on in the conventions? And Jeff is a great person to talk about this as he does work for Priorities Pack. So why don't you tell us first a little bit about Priorities USA, what that is, and then we can talk about the the craziness on the convention floor. Well, Priorities USA uh, first came together for the nineteen for the twenty twelve election on behalf of President Obama, and it was a uh, uh, a new thing on our side of the aisle in the, in those days, and um, we did very effective work. We were kind of a a, a leaner band then, uh, but we uh, created some uh, advertising that was the most memorable from the 2012 uh, cycle. Um, and uh, we've come back together for 2015, 2016. We started working more than a year ago getting ready for uh, this election, and Priorities USA has now become a much uh, uh, bigger operation, I think, with much greater bandwidth. It's being led by Guy Cecil, uh, um, who 
was the executive director of the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. He and I worked together on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. Uh, and we're doing, uh, you know, we're primarily. And the- Ann Caprera, who's a political director, who's one of the funniest people she on is. Facebook, period, of all of Facebook, I, I think. I love Ann. And she, uh, you know, day to day, she's really kind of um, steering the ship and keeping everybody in line in the way that only Ann can do. Um, but our, we're, you know, we're primarily uh, uh, an advertising organization, but. Uh, we've expanded um, and doing, uh, I think, leading edge work in digital uh, advertising. Uh, I think uh, there was a note the other day that that uh, some of the the two of the most effective digital ads on our side were things produced internally at Priorities USA. Tara McGowan uh, leads the uh, that part of the operation. We're doing um, uh, work that is focused not only on the broad electorate, but we have a, a project at Priorities USA uh, on uh, on Latino voters, uh, on African American voters, and we're doing work uh, with Emily's List on millennial women. Uh, so that it's become a much more expansive operation. It's super disciplined. We're very conscious of, of, um, making the best use of every penny. And, uh, and we do the uh, research along with Global Strategy Group, uh, Jeff Pollack and Nick Gurevich. It's a real, it, it, it's a real team between the two of us. We did the polling together for priorities in 2012. And we really operate as, um, as a single, um, as a single group, uh, as if we were one firm for this purpose, and our and our our approach to research is very very similar. So it's it, it's uh, it's super easy. Uh, well, that's good. We certainly I can feel that when you say, "Well, we've done this and we've done this." It's not doesn't sound like you have some of the, you know, infighting or siloed things you hear sometimes about campaigns or some of the, you know, who's in charge worries that you see sometimes. It's one of What's the nice going on things about side? working for a super PAC as opposed to uh, uh, the campaign itself, that it's a bigger operation than it used to be in 2012, but it's still a, a small group of people. We get along well. We're not. We all have one objective, which is to make sure Hillary Clinton gets elected president in November and uh, and uh, we are all pulling very much in the same direction. So tell us a little bit about how you might test uh, some of the ads or words, let's be more specific, that you've been using, that Priorities has been using in some of its ads. I mean, you've had um, – Priorities did this great ad where it had um, – I mean, a lot of the ads have really focused on using Donald Trump's own words specifically about women. There was uh, uh, ads with women wearing T-shirts with Trump's face on it. Am I describing it properly? Yeah. Um, that uh, that was pretty powerful and it, and it certainly went viral. Um, how – you know, when you test that sort of thing, do you just play Trump's words and focus groups? Can you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, without going into Well, it works. A lot of our ad testing is done online with uh, online panels of voters in the states where we're going to do our advertising. Uh, and, um, uh, and, uh, and we try to make sure that we are measuring the impact of the advertising um, in – uh, on the dimensions that really matter, people, is it, it, is this something that you pay attention to? Is it believable? 
Um, does it, what's it make you think about Donald Trump? You know, ads, I think you have, when you're measuring the impact of ads, it's not, you know, in, uh, it's, it's not merely a mechanical, um, uh, process in that advertising is done in service of sort of a, a larger strategic objective that, um, that, that the strategy comes first in terms of what is it you want to get people to think or understand about uh, Donald Trump that they may not, or what are the things you want to reinforce so that, uh, that uh, the, our advertising and all good advertising is purpose-driven. And so it's not whether people like the ad or the ad is powerful, but does it also serve the larger strategic purpose? So there, we're very um, uh, uh, focused on that. And, um, and, you know, for these, uh, ads that, that use the, um, uh, the, the Trump quotes and a lot of our advertising uh, does that is that, uh, 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 our partners at Global Strategy Group have done extensive testing of literally hundreds of, of uh, clips of Donald Trump <laughs> online to see what really cuts through to people and what what's no shortage of material there is no shortage of material it's it's that's actually quite interesting because as you know from your uh, political life what you normally do is you get these very big research books and believe me in donald trump's case the research books are are endless in terms of kind of his past lives and misdeeds in trump's case uh, but here, the best material is stuff that has been created since Donald Trump has started to be a candidate. It's things he said that that you know that there is an upside for him and his you know his love of the media and his ability to dominate the media through tweets and through uh, these kind of pro- provocative interviews. But they also create a lot of source material that, um, as general election voters kind of look at what he said and think about what he said. Um, uh, th- that they r- raises very deep doubts in people's minds whether this is the kind of person who they want to be president of the United States. So that whether it's uh, quotes about uh, women or about um, or about uh, his views on military affairs or uh, or or other groups that uh, other quotes that are kind of you know really give a sense of sort of being a bullying or divisive uh, person. Uh, all have, you know, kind of revealed themselves in in the research to have a lot of power. But th- this testing that that Jeff Pollock and Nick Gurevich at GSG has done, uh, I think, has been uh, incredibly helpful and directive in in all of that. Uh, we also, you know, we, we show people things in uh, in focus groups uh, as well. Um, and uh, we've had one ad uh, that I think is really uh, a compelling and outstanding ad featuring a, uh, about a little girl named Grace who uh, was born with. Oh, yes. Right. right. Born with spina bifida. If uh, people if, if they haven't seen it, you should find it on YouTube. It really is quite a very powerful ad. And um, uh, and uh, it, it has uh, Grace's parents speaking throughout the ad reacting to something that Donald Trump did earlier in their campaign where he made fun of a disabled reporter 
who's re- reporting Trump didn't like it, it had to do with 9-11. And he, you know, physically kind of imitated his the guy's disability in a kind of grotesque way. I mean, in a mean and grotesque way. And we showed that clip to people in in focus groups as a part of showing lots of other things about Donald Trump. But that one really broke through and stood out in a way that nothing else did just you know, in some ways because of the meanness of it, but also because people know um, someone with a disability in their lives. And I was in uh, Florida in one focus group, and and uh, there was a man there who was going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, And he saw this clip, and he said, I'm the father of an autistic son, and I could never vote for Donald Trump. Uh, uh, you know, because what, you know, because of the, um, you know, the callousness of mocking somebody with a who disability. is, you know, def- defenseless or at least is not, yeah, yeah. You know, did not kind of asked to be part of this exchange. I mean, you could make a case, I suppose, if you wanted to, if you were looking for a reason to side with Donald Trump, you could say, well, Rosie O'Donnell, Megyn Kelly, they, you know, have entered the political arena in a way that makes this exchange fair game somehow. But I mean, I could disagree, but I could see how you could try to torture yourself to get there if you wanted to yeah. support Donald Trump. It, but that's not the case. It's for this. Very different here. But what that sentiment that that father expressed in the focus group, and we had some uh, another dad in um, in Philadelphia who said something very similar. That's essentially what that ad became, and it is a natural reaction to that. People, you know, don't mind somebody who is tough. As president, but their cruelty is not a is not a quality that we look for in a president, and that's really what comes through um, in um, uh, in a very stark and disturbing way when people see that quote. Trump, of course, is uh, has said, "Oh, I didn't know the the guy was disabled," which is a lie, and uh, you know, our ad has been. Uh, Shocking, shocking. Right, Trump right. Line. Our ad's been reviewed by ad watches, and uh, and they've been pretty clear that that Trump's uh, denial just doesn't bear any scrutiny at all. Um, so several many cycles ago, I worked on a race. He was not my husband at the time, but is my husband now where he did the ads and we had a candidate we were running against um, Don Sherwood mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Uh, Pennsylvania and Don Sherwood it was incredibly Republican district it was 2006 super super Republican he had this um, story where he uh, had allegedly choked his tried to strangle his mistress and she ran into the bathroom she locked the door she turned the shower on so he couldn't hear her while she called 911 and that's pretty incendiary. But people, by the time it got kind of filtered and people heard about it, they're like, oh, well, he cheated on his wife. I don't know if that's really a problem. We had to really tell the story in a way that it was clear this was not sort of run-of-the-mill, you know, congressman dalliance in Washington. This is actually really quite serious. And give permission for folks who may, just like the, these folks are talking about in their focus group, give permission for folks to say, you know what, I voted for him. Not, but I'm not going to now. And that's not the guy. I that's meant to not vote the for. guy I meant to vote for. And how can I tell my daughter that I voted for someone who did this? And so we would show we had this, you know, very similar. We had, you know, people, real people who lived in a district show pictures of their family. Say, I can't tell my daughter that I voted for him, and test it in ads, and people do not find it a negative. That kind of ad, even it may be contrastive, does not read as negative if you have actual people as opposed to. 
you know, actors, for example. Um, that's, I think, the difference between, to go back to your earlier point, between having, a, you know, a political ad firm versus, you know, a more Madison Avenue commercial ad firm that maybe doesn't have that quite, can't, you know, doesn't have that kind of ear for what voters are looking for. Well, uh, and, you know, this is very important part of our how we think about advertising and testing advertising today, because people don't just sort of, you know, people are busy in their lives. They're in a presidential election, particularly um, or in a in a highly competitive Senate race. They're just bombarded with stuff and things go in one ear and out the other. They tend to be skeptical about advertising in general, and that skepticism has been measurably increased over time. And so it's very important for ads to, you know, that, you know, what we're looking for is ads that have, uh, that, that people can connect with personally, that have a, you know, that, that, that have a stickiness to them, uh, that really stand out. Uh, a lot of negative advertising now is really kind of, you know, a lot of print on the screen and an announcer essentially screaming at people. And, you know, not surprisingly, um, people don't like to be screamed at from their TV all, all, all of the time. And the and, production values are usually not as high as a more traditional commercial ad. Right. And, you know, in most of our ads or many of our ads, we have either – Trump talking or kind of a, a person talking and true in other races that we uh, do as well, rather than just having um, this sort of disembodied uh, narrator. And, you know, we did uh, Priorities USA, didn't uh, the Grace ad that I've been talking about is a 60 second ad. Uh, and it takes sort of courage from a guy Cecil to sort of spend the money to run a 60 second ad. It costs twice as much money as running a 30 second ad. And in in uh, in the 2012 campaign, uh, we had uh, where we uh, did um, o- almost uh, all of our advertising was about Mitt Romney's uh, work at Bain Capital and the effect it had on people's lives. We did an ad that was really quite powerful um, and um, uh, about a, a guy who was asked to build a stage mm-hmm. at his uh, company, and it turns out the purpose of the stage was somebody from Bain getting up there to tell people that they're all being fired. I was building my coffin, right? Wasn't right. that the and line? That's the guy, what he said. I said, I, I, you know, when I built that stage, I felt like I was building my coffin. Uh, and a very powerful line. So we went to Columbus in early October, uh, and this ad had not run since August. And in the focus groups, I asked people, what do they remember seeing in the, what commercials do they remember seeing in, um, in the campaign? And uh, and Ohio was sort of ground zero right. for advertising, so they'd you know been besieged with stuff, and believe it that there was a Senate race going on. I don't even know how people well. want to turn on the television when they live in a and battleground state like that. People not only remembered this ad, um, the sixty second ad that we had run um, six weeks earlier, but they recited the closing line, and um, and it, it and it really meant a lot to them. They really kind of the story. To them, uh, was revelatory and, you know, about who, you know, Mitt Romney's, uh, heart and soul. And, uh, you know, really because, you know, largely because of that research, that's how we ended the campaign in Ohio and, mm-hmm. and in other states as well. And, uh, Ohio was one of the places where President Obama did a little bit better with blue collar women. And I think that that helped. Uh, help his margin there. And that, that ad it turned out to be, I think, was central to 
uh, to kind of really connecting with blue collar women about the difference, the difference between Mitt Romney and, and President Obama. So John Sides from Washington Post Monkey Cage wrote something, I don't know, a couple months ago, because there's this myth or not myth. There's a narrative, I should say, in Washington that I've heard Republicans say, too, that priorities defined Mitt Romney early through ads like the ones you're talking about. And then had he had this hard grain, you know, ingrained image that was you could not turn around that by the time 47 percent comes around and all the rest of it, it was too it was too late. The campaign was already lost. And the same thing's probably going to happen now because Trump hasn't been running any television advertising whatsoever and priorities and other folks are doing stuff. Then, but John Side said, well, actually, that's not true because Romney was already vulnerable on these traits. It just kind of hardened what was already happening. It didn't sort of create a new Mitt Romney where none existed. It just firmed up the image that was already kind of there. I mean, what do you, what do you think? What's your take? Well, we, you know, that on these attributes that we were trying to deepen in terms of how people thought of Mitt Romney, um, that he looks, you know, that he cares mainly about um, the wealthy and not the middle class. That that there was measurable growth in those in, in those attributes uh, as it, as we were running our advertising in the places places that we ran our advertising. So I think the, you know, we we ran them on this topic because people were were primed for it. But that is that is the a conclusion about. Uh, Mitt Romney that we were hoping to be able to um, seal in people's minds. The mystifying thing, I mean, the, I think the kind of the real question, I, I don't have very much question in my mind about uh, the impactfulness of the ad. I do have a lot of questions about why the Romney campaign or other um, Republican super PACs didn't try to do anything to to stop it. To, well, <laughs> or to give people a different impression yeah. of, of Mitt Romney. Right. And um, uh, and I talked to um, uh, uh, a fellow from uh, uh, Crossroads after mm-hmm. the election, a Carl Rove super PAC, and said, "Why didn't you?" And he said, "Well, you know, we didn't. We just didn't feel like our job was to do anything positive for for Romney. That's not what super PACs do." But that was a moment when Romney, you know, that's a real pass the buck kind of answer. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, every, and there's no, there's your, obviously no law that super PACs can't do. Right. It's just for positive. folks who are listening. It's just common practice because the theory goes that the candidate is best suited to talk about themselves in a positive way and they may get some pushback if they go negative themselves. And so the super PAC then traditionally, I traditionally for a past couple cycles carries the negative and leaves the, you know, which they can do because there's no person, there's no voice of the super PAC. It's just this sort of. Right. But there are counter examples that are compelling uh, in that uh, there is an independent expenditure on behalf of President Bush in 2004. I think Larry McCarthy made the advertisement. And it was a father telling a very compelling story about his daughter and the way President Bush had kind of had stepped in and and helped to kind of in in, in a very personal way. And that also had a measurable impact uh, in Ohio. So that that was an instance of a independent expenditure telling a positive story. I think usually the the case is that 
because we are independent, that we can't coordinate with the campaign, we obviously can't go interview the candidate. Right, that's And so that the, there's that kind of limitation. And you're limited but, by the footage and all right, that kind but of you, stuff. Right, but you can certainly interview people who have interacted with the candidate. Right. Um, so you, you have kind of lots of options here. Right, and for folks who remember when Mitch McConnell had all these videos on his website that were then – that launched a variety of daily show jokes. That was footage he was putting out in the world. So a right. super PAC could help him. That was just like footage of him, like, you know, smiling at his desk or whatever it was. That, you right. know. The best, the best example of that was Ted Cruz, who's, <laughs> right. whose That's B-roll right. uh, was on of him, you know, these super <laughs> uncomfortable scenes with him and his family. And, you know, that uh, I think uh, Trevor Noah had people make their own Ted Cruz right. ads right, right, right. off of that. It was, quite hysterical yeah you get almost more attraction from the spoof ads than from the ads made with the footage um but yeah but anyway so that's the sort of digression of why that's the case but i mean i guess you know with mitt romney i guess you but you're right i mean it seemed like why not make him a little bit more positive i mean he was clearly capable of doing it i mean the folks who spoke on his behalf at the convention were able to really tell some nice stories about mitt romney the documentary which everyone said oh if we had seen this mitt romney i don't think we've had a, a different result but at least you saw mitt romney you know be nice to his family which i was never I never doubted he was nice as a dad or grandparent. It was just, you know, did you agree with his policies? But still, it did give a little bit more to make him look less wooden. I think with Trump, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to have that kind of family endorsement. I mean, we've seen now some of his children and his wife speak, and I don't know if they've been able to really paint him in any kind of human light. I mean, what do you think? Would you test, I mean— would you test them as messengers? Would you ever want to see how they, you know, if you were with the Trump campaign, would you test the Trump children or Melania as messengers? Or would you ever use them as examples of how, you know, he's out of touch? I thought those family members seemed very much not relatable. It was hard for me to put aside my partisan hat. Watching I think the them. one exception may be Ivanka. Yeah. Um, well, and- Tiffany was – Perfectly, I thought she seemed very nice. I just thought her stories, her anecdotes, were not very humanizing. Like my dad called me when someone died. That right. didn't mean to me. That was not. A... And Donald Jr. gave a policy speech in yeah. some regards, as opposed yeah. uh, to you know real. We didn't learn very much more about Donald Trump after you know as a result of Donald Jr.'s speech. Um, so, but I do think that there are times when, um, you know, those speeches are um, helpful, and that and that there's there are things there that you want to repeat after the convention is over. I think the different. I, I, you know, I thought Ann Romney's speech in the 2012 convention was a good speech, but it was really about um, how Mitt Romney loves his family. Right. And and Michelle Obama spoke at the 2012 convention, not the one that was cribbed um, <laughs> by uh, Melania um, uh, the other night. But uh, m- but Michelle spoke, uh, and you know her message was not just that 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 President Obama loves his family, but also that he cares about your family. Right. And I think that that really was the important part of the speech, and she told that in a very. Um, uh, uh, I think credible and compelling way, and uh, and but what you know that that uh, you know she's a 
you know, she's a super admired figure in the country and, uh, and is a, you know, one of the things that, that, it, you know, I, I always kind of, when, in our polling, I always think about, you know, what are the kind of redeeming values that'll serve a, a politician well through thick and thin, you know, even in the worst of time for uh, times for president Clinton, it, you know, he always, you know, people always thought, you know, in his heart, he really cares about people like me. Right. Um, and, you know, President Obama's family and his kind of the, the, his grounding as a kind of a family man uh, really is a strength that is that 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 it's one of the things that where, you know, people are able to connect with him, even yeah. when you've got sort of pretty violent uh, uh, policy disagreements um, and. Um, and, you know, that kind of personal um, uh, insight, you know, is very important in in helping people who, you know, f- may have other reasons to disagree with President Obama, kind of to find their way back to him. Um, uh, and, uh, of course, you know, that that um, his approval ratings for all of this year have now kind of pretty consistently been more positive than negative. Yeah. And, uh, and not having to do with his family, but having to do with um, a the sense that he, um, you know, uh, he he looks good in comparison to right. what's going on in the rest oh, of the political goodness. system. Yeah, no, I, I mean, at some level, I feel like annoyed that we care about the candidates' families. I mean, at some level, it's like, well, why should it matter to me if? He gets along, some of the candidate gets along with their spouse. I mean, people have different kinds of marriages and some of them don't go well. That doesn't really seem like it should have any bearing on anything else. And we judge, you know, people are talking about the Trump family and the fact that Ivanka is poised, which she is and she's lovely and lots of people like hearing her speak. But does that really tell us? Anything we need to know about I, I Trump's know policy? It, I, don't, I, mean, I think I know the that way people use I think what is important in politics is that people be able to you know, see them, see their story in the candidate's story. Yeah. Uh, and see their lives. One of my favorite political stories is from the, um, before even I was involved in politics, was when President Kennedy first ran for Congress in 1946. He went to visit um, uh, 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 Gold Star mothers, people who lost their children, uh, their sons mainly in World War II. And, um, and, you know, the compelling line from that was, I think I know exactly how you feel. My mother is a gold star mother too. And for a politician to be able to say in a credible way, I think I know exactly how you feel is magical and golden in politics. Right. And very, and, you know, very few politicians have that skill, but it is very important to the voters in terms of of how they think about uh, their connection to somebody, whether they think somebody is um, really kind of sincere about the the things that they um, uh, that they say they want to do, or whether they'll be on on uh, whether the candidate will end up being on the side of the voters when push comes to shove in politics. Yeah, I guess everybody just wants to be heard, whoever you are. Even Donald Trump, he just wants to be heard, right? We all just want to be heard. But so, so tell me, what's your take of where we go in our politics from here? I mean, it's really hitting. I mean, it, very, I've been doing this 20 years. You've been doing it 
for a little bit longer. I, you know, I've never heard anybody say in a focus group like, I'm Wait. in my 38th year <laughs> at Heart Research. Way to now. go, way to go, my God. Um, okay, so not as long as I've been alive, just for the record. Um, uh, but nobody says, Way to go, Congress, you're doing a great job, right? I mean, I don't think anybody did anybody say that when you were in year one or two of Heart Research. Well, you know, I was. Um I started a little bit after Watergate, but not long after Watergate. Right. So and not then end, either. And by the end of the Carter administration, people were were kind of feeling pretty unhappy with uh, uh, the world as well. I don't think that that's um, new, but I think we are, in a lot of ways, we are kind of in a crossroads in our politics. Um, uh, and at a crossroads uh, as a country. Um, and... Uh, and, and let me start with the crossroads as a country first is that that you know i there's a lot of people who say oh you know why isn't there somebody who who um you know can bring the country together a i don't think it's going to be a politician who brings the country together and i i think you know that'll happen as a result but i i think we're at a crossroads in the sense that um that we either embrace our diversity as a country or that we try um uh to kind of uh retreat to our quarter corners and the, there's no middle ground that's really kind of what's being litigated mm-hmm. in the way in this election mm-hmm. and um and um my hope and expectation is that at the end of the day that people will opt on the side of embracing our our diversity that's certainly true i mean that you know that's a settled question with with millennial voters for example uh, Kristen knows much more about that than anybody else but that it, it's part of who they are but right. that 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 view i think is uh is uh is you know spreading across generations increasingly um but also that that um um, that you know that 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 people's uh, cynicism and distrust about uh, politicians and the political process is, uh, you know, it, it, uh, this is not the only time it's ever happened in 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 America. Um, but um, you know, we are at a moment where I think people are very much inclined to um, uh, to think that that uh, that you know politicians are guilty until proven innocent mm-hmm. uh, the burden of uh, the burden of doubt is very much against uh, people in politics uh they're you know they they you know it we're in an ironic situation and we're, we've done a lot of polling on this question for the center for american progress where kind of on the one hand people are skeptical about government whether government can solve problems but on the other hand they actually want more government rather than less so right. w- when you talk about specific problems they want government to be doing more not less right. to create jobs they want government to be more doing for me more. they just want it to be doing less for somebody else well i'm not even sure that that's true but um uh, but but a part of the cynicism that we find in terms of people's attitudes about government um, is not that, you know, necessarily that it's too big, uh, and that it taxes too much. I mean, that part of the, you know, traditional Republican critique, um, you know, uh, you know, holds water with, you know, some portion of the electorate. But, but, but 
what is far more deeply believed by Americans now is about government is that it, it's working for somebody else. Right. I mean, that you're right. But not, Somebody's that, getting a not better necessarily deal. that it's working for poor people. There's a, there's a little bit of that, but it, that, that it's essentially the critique that Bernie Sanders was making mm-hmm. or that Elizabeth Warren makes. Uh, and, but that also Donald Trump has made and Ted Cruz occasionally during the Republican, um, somebody's getting a better deal. Is that yeah. somebody's getting a better deal and the, the, the more wealth and power and influence, the more government's going to work for you. And if you don't have that, if you're just an average America, American, it's not going to work for you at all. And people are very angry about that. And, you know, the truth is that, um, you know, if you're a politician today or if you're in government today, there's no middle ground here. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And we need more more people who, uh, if we're going to restore confidence in essentially the, you know, kind of the, the democratic proposition, we, you know, we, we just need more political leaders to be part of the solution and convince people that they are. One of the things that I think was most disturbing in 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 uh, uh, in polling uh, uh, that, that that I've seen is it's not just that people distrust politicians, but they um, they also are starting to distrust each other. Yes, yes, that gallop. So that there, there's a there's a, a polling question yeah. of you know do you, do you trust um, uh, voters to make wise choices? Right, and that's going up. And we it, talked about that. And there's, yeah. been, there's been a sharp decline in the percentage yeah. of Americans who trust other Americans to make good political choices. Yeah. yeah, and that's really kind of at the heart of the Democratic proposition, not the, the small D Democratic proposition. Right, and for a long, long time, people hated Congress but liked their member of Congress, yeah. and now even that's not true anymore. I mean, yeah. you guys do the NBC Wall Street Journal poll with. Public opinion strategies, Bill McInturf, Neil Neil Newhouse, one of the partners we've had on the show uh, before. But one of the questions that you guys ask on that poll is if you get rid of them all. Right. And isn't like a majority who say, yes, that we get rid of most people still get reelected. Yeah. Um, True. And uh, they just like the idea of, well, they don't have the option to get rid of them all. But, you know, I think, you know, it's 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 interesting that that. in, you know, the places where there's the greatest turnover is not kind of at the House level, but at the Senate level, mm-hmm. where people don't kind of don't know the candidates quite as well. And there's a lot more advertising in, in, in Senate campaigns I, when I say don't don't know them personally as well. Um, and um, they're not at the barbecue or right. local parade and, or. Um, uh, and so there, you know, there, you know, there's there's been a lot of um, willingness to. Um, a turnover. And, the, you know, the other thing that we're kind of just wrestling with that constantly in our political polling is, um, is, you know, are there really swing voters left in the electorate? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that there is a time, and, and this is sort of, I was thinking about this as I was watching kind of the nuttiness of the Republican convention over the past couple of nights is that you know there there I think there was a time where there really were kind of swing voters people who um who um who you know considered both options and either they you know they, they didn't like either one but they or they thought both of them were plausible options and I think you know more and more we have uh, you know 
the vast majority of Americans, you know, if you push them hard enough, are either Democrats or Republicans. There are very few people left in the middle, uh, which, you know, which uh, most of them are not following very closely. uh, And um, and, you know, and and so that, you know, the Republican convention only makes sense. Uh, to me, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> under any circumstances, but only makes sense if you think that that kind of the only thing that matters to them is turning out the base, right. ener- energizing the base. And whether we're kind of in this uh, situation now where, you know, we've got these two camps in America, um, a, a Democratic camp and a Republican camp. And it is really, you know, all politics is about anymore is rallying your camp as opposed to trying to win voters in the middle. I think, you know, I, I uh, and I think it is better for America in some ways if we, um, you know, have a vibrant center. But I don't want to be Pollyannish about that is that um, that uh, uh, and I think that the changing demographics of the electorate also affects this, that there are, you know, you know, voters of color and young people who want to get their due in the political system. And and I think that that changes the political conversation quite a lot. So here's my, you know, here's the thing I kind of struggle with as I watch the Trump phenomenon, right, which is at some levels really horrifying. I mean, it's not simply that we have policy disputes like you would have if you had Jeb Bush, who is, you know, was no moderate. He was just moderate relative to the rest of his of the field or Mitt Romney. Um, But at least you felt like everyone was kind of vaguely speaking the the same language. While what I see with Trump are two things. One is just, you know, shining a light on and now we're asking questions in public polling about things that were unthinkable to to bring to say in polite company about how people view uh, Muslims or African-Americans or Latinos in ways that are just, you know, just really I find so um, horrific. And then the numbers that you get are so uh, are surprising. And I don't get surprised very easily by by poll results. And when you have Republicans who are on the sidelines but still, you know, kind of having tepid endorsements for Trump or say, well, he's not my candidate, but, uh, you know, that's that's OK. I'm going to be with him. I feel like you have establishment and Republican voters who are complicit in in saying, you know, somebody who traffics in racist, sexist, hateful language you know, is okay, is better than somebody who, and is also completely unqualified on top of that and incompetent, is somehow better than somebody with whom I have policy disagreements. And I just don't know how, you know, I personally am going to get around that when I want to be open-minded to Republican voters and Republican establishment. I want to have an open mind. And this is not just about people who feel the American dream is slipping away, which obviously lots of people feel, Democrats and Republicans. But there's so much that's focused on race and the worries about the other and just real bigotry. It's like a, you know, hateful, like hateful Twitter has become a political party. And I just don't know how we all kind of move beyond that. And the rea- even if Trump loses, he'll have come, been nearly tied in the polls for a long time, presumably before then. Well, I think you, I think that's kind of the central question of, of this election. It's what's at the heart of the election. And I think the, um, you know, in, in the Democratic, uh, sorry, in the Republican primary electorate, the audience for 
that kind of rhetoric is, you know, substantial enough to comfortably nominate uh, uh, Donald Trump. I don't think it's where the center of gravity is in the in the in the, in the national electorate, and uh, we'll find out for sure. But I do think that um, that 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 part of what you know that in most, if you look at the polling averages, uh, there are a couple of polls where. Trump's been higher than this. But if you look at the polling averages, Trump, even when Hillary goes down, Trump doesn't go up past the low 40s. Uh, and, you know, he, I think he's got some a little bit more upward potential, but not much um, because, of, you know, I think that there is, a, you know, that most Americans do not really identify with the kind of hateful um, uh uh, rhetoric of the Trump campaign. They certainly don't identify with somebody who uh, is slow to or never does um, kind of uh, reject David Dukes and white nationalists when they right. support him. Um, uh, the list uh, is literally endless. And uh, but we'll see where, you know, I think part this is a this election is very much of a Rorschach test for the country in the way that presidential elections, I think, kind of unique, uniquely can be. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll see a lot about where the center of gravity is. I think that, you know, in some ways, there are kind of two p pieces to the Trump message. Um, one is, you know, that the elites have failed the country. Um, and Donald Trump's not, you know, in one of those guys, the political elites and uh, the corporate elites and the, kind of the international trade elites and all of those mm -hmm. folks. And, you know, I think there's a... There's an argument there. There's, there's a there there to, to that. And then the other part is now he's expressing kind of in in in, in the frame of law and order right. more and more. And, um, and, and, and Paul Manafort said that kind of, you know, in a way that this is sort of deliberately and intentionally trying to imitate what President Nixon did yeah. in 1968. But the country is a very different country than it was in 1968. Not, uh, certainly in its, its experience of crime and lawlessness and disorder is, is different today than it was in 1968. Uh, you know, crime is, is actually at a relative low. You know in polling that if you ask people what are the most important issues facing the country, crime doesn't come up very high in the way that right. it would have been dominant in 1968 or mm -hmm. in uh, other, other Or even moments, in the early 90s. Mid-90s. Well, we had the crime bill yeah. that everybody is yeah. unhappy with now, but At it was a product was of a kind of a, of a kind of a, of a fearfulness that simply doesn't exist today in yep. the country. And, um, and, um, but, and I think that, that, you know, the more Trump emphasizes that campaign, he will sort of undermine the kind of the anti elite part of his message. Yeah. Um, and cause the, I think in some ways these are kind of warring, um, uh, messages with, with each other, or at least in terms of kind of the, the breadth of the audiences. And so, um, uh, but, you know, I think, you know, there are, as I said earlier, we're kind of at a fork in the road in terms of how we kind of deal with the, our, the, the diversity in our country. Um, but this is a moment when, you know, Americans really have to decide what kind of country we want to be. And it's, um, I'm, I am hopeful. I mean, one of the, I'm, uh, and 
Uh, I don't just work for Priorities USA. I'm an avid supporter of Hillary Clinton's, and I believe in Hillary Clinton. And I, um, and I, um, I think that I think I trust her to be able to put this question to the country in a in a compelling way. So, what do you make of the fact that? Her favorables are not really that different from Trump's and her advantage over him is, you know, single digits. It's consistent, but it's not she she's not dominating him when well, he's literally I, I, the I worst candidate on the planet. This goes to the kind of the political polarization um, I was talking about earlier. It was we have, you know, roughly an even number of people who think of themselves as Democrats and Republicans are certainly in the swing states and the likely voter electorate. And um and, um, you know, because of the people like Paul Ryan and others, rank and file Republican voters have been given a signal that they should rally around Donald Trump. And they've done that. And um, and so, uh, you know, once he's passed that thre- threshold, it's sort of baked into the cake that we're going to have a reasonably competitive election. And there are other things going on. I think it'd be kind of naive to, to ignore those. I mean, that that uh, in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll that that. That, uh, you know, there's a question, I think, that kind of is a, a very well-framed question about, you know, do you want uh, somebody who's going to bring about change, even if you don't know what that change is going to be, <laughs> oh, I see. versus um, somebody who's going to bring kind of more of a steady hand to things. And you know, by It's a like pa- a line from Obama's White House Correspondents Dinner, right. like when I said change, I should have been more specific. Right. And so um, it was a great line. Uh, and so that, and by a ten point margin, people say, "I want the person who's going to bring change, even if I don't know what that change is going to be." And so, you know, I think that that's part that's an important part of the backdrop of the race, and it's you know uh, uh, hard to ignore that. I think the reality is is that you know Hillary Clinton has a pretty bold change agenda, uh, but ha- has not been you know featured enough. And I think one of the challenge for for her and for you know. Is still, um, you know, Donald Trump does soak up the oxygen all the, in terms of media coverage, even now. Um, and, um, and, you know, reporters are, I, I, I do fault the media for this. Hillary Clinton gave two economic speeches two days in a row. The first one was attacking Trump. And the second one was laying out, I think, a, a pretty, uh, pretty profound economic uh, agenda. And the first one was, you know, because it had these lines on Trump, was pretty well covered. And the, the policy one hardly very much at all. And um, but that's why. Arkin- but that's not just the press's fault. I mean, that's what people want. You know, people people want they don't want to read a pol- hear about a policy I'm not, speech. I'm not actually sure that that's true. I, 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 that's not my experience. Certainly in kind of the research that we're doing with millennial voters, um, people want to know, you know what people want to know more than anything else? Uh, they, they clearly want to know who's going to make my life worse, but they really, what they most want to know is who's going to help make my life better. That is the central question people would like the politicians to ask, not even how they're going to make the country better, but how are you going to make my life better? Right. And, um, and they do, so that they do care about that. And, you know, if you tell, uh, you know, Hillary's got, you know, really, um, strong progressive ideas about, uh, about changing changes in the healthcare, uh, system, uh, taking on high, uh, 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 prescription drug, uh, costs or, um, helping people, um, uh, afford their out of pocket costs through a series of 
tax people tax uh, uh, deductions and credits. People find that compelling, but they don't. It's all new news to them. And so that that a that's why the the upcoming convention is so important. There are very few moments when candidates get to communicate with the country in an unfiltered way. Right. And so the convention will be one of those. Uh, and I'm kind of shocked the way the Republicans are using their unfiltered moment, which is to talk about Lucifer and and uh, and 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 uh, either executing Hillary Clinton or sending her to jail. It's I mean, unbelievable. It's, it, it, it is. I mean, the idea that they think that somehow putting this on TV is going to is a good look for them is kind and, of and Giuliani's wacky. like race speech. I mean, the the, oh. the the I mean, watching Giuliani. Who has moments of brilliance or has had in his career, did not have one this week, even though he got the crowd all riled up. I mean, when he was like shouting, like basically the implication, like racial equality is here, you know, just like close your eyes and imagine it. And then it's here basically is how I took it. Like, you know, it, it, if we just say it enough, then it'll be true. And a crowd that is completely homogenous, cheering and enthusiasm about it. I just found something so off-putting about it. I don't know how, like, do, do Republican establishment folks see that and say, okay, yeah, that, that turned out pretty well. Or are they like, oh my God, what is happening? I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, in, you know, this is a kind of a, you know, a substantial problem of arithmetic for the Republicans because, you know, there are only so many white guys in the country and it's right. really kind of non-college educated white guys. Their share of the electorate has declined radically since when President Clinton was first elected in um, in 1992. I mean, really kind of uh, it's a much smaller piece of the pie. Right. So even if you get 100 percent of them. Uh, well, uh, that would help. You. Uh, that would be a good leg up. But, you know, <laughs> uh, but Republicans do quite well with them. But Trump has really, you know, uh, uh, you know, made it uh, likely that he'll get very few votes from voters of color, whether it's African-American or Latino, even Asian, he kind of turned off, that he's, that, you know, college-educated uh, white women have become a pretty good Democratic constituency, especially at the postgraduate level. But, you know, for, for, for suburban women and, um, that, that, you know, they're deeply turned off by, um, um, by Trump's rhetoric and, and approach. Some college educated white men are as well. Um, you know, particularly in terms of some of his kind of crazy national security talk. It doesn't leave Trump that many places to go to right. kind of grow his support. And this whole convention has been about, you know, I think if anything, you know, you know, making the, 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 the limitations on, on who could be for Trump uh, even greater. Uh, uh, Trevor Noah on t- Tuesday night of, so the, the, the t- Tuesday after the first Monday of the Republican convention had a, 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 a terrific and I think kind of, um, a super strong, opening monologue about the first night of the Republican convention. And I, I highly recommend it to all of your listeners. And uh, it sort of captures a lot oh, of good. the nuttiness of, of, of that night. Just like Chris Rock's tweet, like, oh, so far the convention's pretty good. When does George Zimmerman speak? Right. Not exactly. <laughs> Which, I mean, is painful, obviously, but, you know. Well, I, I, uh, um, I, 
tweeted uh, something the other night. There, there was a. It, uh, you'll you'll remember this in in uh, in 2008, a woman in, in a, at a McCain rally yeah. said to McCain, "I can't be for Obama. He's an Arab." Right. And McCain said, "No, he's not. He's a good man. I have disagreements with him, but he's a good family man." And so, you know, that's a kind of decent response to that. Right. Donald Trump would have made her a convention speaker. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and you know, it's a right. it, it is campaign uh, advisor. It's pretty shocking and. Um, and, you know, the bar has been so lowered uh, in terms of what's acceptable. Um, and, you know, the only way the, the, the bar will get raised is if the voters can weigh in and say it is unacceptable. And I'm hoping that's what will happen in November. So um, before we wrap up, what sort of advice would you give to young folks interested in becoming pollsters, getting involved in polling as an industry. You know, people are always kind of wringing their hands about the future polling. It's all, you know, polling crises lurk around every corner. What, what do, advice would but, you give? Uh, first, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd say it's the greatest um, job <laughs> in the world. I've been, as I said, I started in, uh, in, uh, in 1978, so a very, 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 very long time ago. And I still love coming to work every day. I learn something new every day. Oh, that's great. And, um, and the kinds of things that we get to think about and learn about are really varied. And, um, and, uh, and I enjoy the people in the field and the clients I get to work with. So, A, uh, it's a great uh, profession. Um, and, um, and if you're thinking about it, if you're a young person and you're thinking about it, it's something you should really think hard about. And, you know, in terms of, um, you know, that, that as with lots of other fields, um, that, you know, that the work we do is being married much more, um, intensively with kind of, uh, analytics. Uh, so it's, you know, it's the, you know, the film in the film, it would be post-production. Right. Uh, so kind of uh, the <laughs> kind of the post-survey analytics is becoming more and more of uh, important in part to make sure you're getting kind of the that, that your your sampling is um, is an, an accurate view. And, um, you know, there are there are challenges um uh, but right now, I don't think any of them are insurmountable. To me, the biggest challenge is not, you know, cell phones or, 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 um, or respondent refusal. Those are things that are, are prob, are problems. They're very expensive to deal with, but there are ways of dealing with them. The biggest problem is getting the universe of voters right. Right. And that's, um, uh, and, you know, I talk to smart people about that uh, all of the time, and there's not a magic answer to right. that. Right. I mean, Pew did a report a few months ago about this, and they did some September polling, and then they went back and verified people whether or not they were voters, and then did some follow-up to kind of figure out what would be the best predictors of who was going to vote. And um, it was a variety of questions. It wasn't just simply how likely you are to vote, um, but you still can't get it completely exactly right. And we had Scott Keeter on the show and he said, look, this is an audience. It's a universe that doesn't exist yet when you're polling. <laughs> like, you, you know, it's not like you're getting it wrong because you did something wrong. I said this, you're trying to measure something that literally does not exist because you don't know until election day exactly. whether or not they're going to, you know, uh, vote. And you, I think, um, you know, a lot of folks who watch polling, the 
polling commentators and handicappers and aggregators and so on, they're kind of looking very closely at how well you're predicting that final number. And that's where a lot of analytics also plays a role. And it's less of a focus on what we know as campaign pollsters and and what we do for our clients that people don't see that there's much more than just sort of putting a number on it. The number is 42. It's about the writing and the crafting of what you're going to say, testing, you know, making sure you, everything's included, that your questions are really asking the right questions, that your language really reflects what the candidate's going to say, that you can simulate a campaign environment in some way or at least best you can. I mean, I, sometimes we spend so much time focusing on how closely you're going to nail that final electorate that you're not, you know, we're not always paying attention to the rest of what goes on in research. Yes. And look, I mean, when, when we work, when we work in politics, our clients, you know, care about two things that a, they do want it to be right. I mean, that it, right. we, we are, you know, uh, if it, it, you know, the campaign's over, if they won and you told them they were going to lose, they hate you. Right. If you lose and they, Tell him going to one that you're going to win. They hate you even more. Yeah. Um, so you know, getting it right is uh, it matters. Yes, yeah. so I don't want to minimize rep- it. Reputationally, pretty important. Um, and um, and it's what you know. Frankly, it's what we're paid to do. I mean, that's we're. Um, uh, but obviously, um, you know, helping with. Uh, with the strategic insight. Right, but the polls this far out insights are, are, that will say, yeah. Well, and the truth is you don't get ac- held accountable yeah. for polls this far out. But, you know, we, you know, but I, you know, I, I worry now, I worry every day about, about, you know, knowing um, whether we've got the, the right people in the sample. I mean, we had um, 2012, the total number of people who voted was actually lower than 2008. And that's happened a couple of other times, mm-hmm. but it's—I don't think we've had uh, two elections where where tr- the the gross turnout has dropped two cycles in a row mm-hmm. presidentially. Mm-hmm. But I could see that happening now. Mm-hmm. I mean, given that twenty—you know—only six percent of voters like both candidates, twenty-five mm-hmm. percent of them don't like either one of the candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, under those scenarios, you could see turnout—you uh, uh, know—dropping further from twenty twelve, and. Um, so, you know, being able to get the electorate right in the sample is the hardest and the most important thing to do in terms of the accuracy of the polling. Right. So tell us, uh, tell folks how they can find you, find you on Twitter, find the firm, learn about what you're doing. Uh, well, our website is uh, www.heartresearch, H-A-R-T research, all one string dot com. Uh, and we try to post the news about our, our, our current projects on there. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Jeff Guerin, G-E-O-F-F-G-A-R-I-N. Um, and, um, and, uh, my email, if you ever want to, uh, careful what you wish get, for, get a hold of me is G Guerin <laughs> at Heart Research. It's on the website. And <laughs> if you've got questions, I'll try to be responsive. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. I'm so glad. What a treat for you to come in and so we could do this in person. How fun. Thank you for inviting me. I yeah. Really no, it. no problem. Take care. Okay. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. 
Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.